Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. We're so glad you're here this morning with us. If you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 is where we're at. And so you, um, some of you were hoping Christmas would be over, but it is not this morning. We are still in Christmas. I know some of you are like December 25th. We take down the tree. It's over. I don't want to hear about it again until Thanksgiving. Um, but we're going to extend it a little bit this year um, to Luke chapter 2 because that's where we're at in the Bible. So um, conveniently, uh, turn there to Luke chapter 2. Now, I, I hope that you all had a good Christmas. Everybody have a good Christmas? You guys get, get a gift or something this year? Everybody get a gift? Anybody not get a gift? No, don't raise your hand. You, didn't get, <laughs> you know, gifts are, gifts are an interesting thing. You know, sometimes it's just really exciting to get a gift, and sometimes it's like, I don't know about that gift. Um, one year, I had... I had my, one of the grandfathers gave one of my sons a interesting gift. It was a flying man. A little, and I never seen anything like it before or since, but it was, it was an interesting little flying man. And it actually had wings. And the wings kind of flap back and forth like this. And um, so I put this little flying man out, put some batteries in him, and he was very excited taking him out of the package. And then I hit, you know, the fly button, and the little guy went up. He started to fly, and it was like a, I guess you can't describe it any other way than just like a giant moth. And he's like, I don't want it, I don't want it. He ran, he ran into the other room. Like, yeah, that's awesome. It was, it was a delight to me. It wasn't so much to him. Um, but, you know, sometimes gifts are, are interesting. Other times they're unexpected or, or maybe even like very sacrificial. I don't know. You guys are probably familiar with Henry O's, um, The Gift of the Magi, where she cut off her hair to get him a chain for his watch. And he sold his watch to get her brushes for her hair. You know, one of those things, you know, where it's just a, a very sacrificial gift. Years ago, my wife and I were going through kind of a, a, a trying time. And I, it, was, it, was, it was prescribed by the Lord for sure. But it was that time when we just started the church. And I had just quit my job. And I was doing some jobs on the side. And the demands of the church were becoming more and more. So I had to spend more time at the church. And I had less time to work. And it was one of those times where I was kind of wrestling with God and you know, I just say, you know, Lord, I, I, we just need you to provide. And God was. I mean, it was just amazing. We went through a season where God, as we prayed, God would just provide so specifically. And what was interesting is one of those times we, we prayed for a specific need and, and bills that were coming due or something. And, and the Lord answered it so specifically. But the source of the gift was a single mom. And, and if, if it wouldn't have been, you know, so perfect and exactly what we had prayed for, I, I would have been like, we can't accept this, you know. But it was just one of those things that you know that it's super sacrificial. And, and so it is with our, our text today as we look at um, a son is given. We see Jesus coming into this world. And, and it is. It's one of those amazingly sacrificial moments um, on the part of God. But also, interestingly and sadly, a gift that a lot of people run from and say, I don't want it. And so if you'll stand with me, Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> and um, looking at verse 1, um, the word of the Lord this morning. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. 
So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping over, the, over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And Father, we thank you for this text that we're looking at today. I pray that you would have us, help us to have ears to hear what you're speaking to us this morning, Lord. As we look at the gift, the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind. And how strange it is. How awesome it is, Lord. How marvelous it is. I just pray, Father, that we would have fresh eyes to hear, fresh ears or fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear, Lord, what you're, what you're trying to show us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So earlier, last time, we saw in chapter 1, Mary, a young virgin, betrothed to um, a young man by the name of Joseph. And of course, um, betrothal was that engagement. But in their culture, it's a lot different than our betrothal. Um, in their culture, the engagement took place at the city gate um, and the vows were exchanged really there. The promises were made there. And so at that betrothal, they were legally bound to each other. So an engagement wasn't one of those things like it is in our day where, you know, you wear the ring and you're like, I don't want to marry this guy and you throw the ring at him or something like that. It couldn't happen. You were legally married. And at that point, after the betrothal, you'd ha actually have to get a legal divorce. And that's kind of gives us a little bit of context to what we're looking at today as we look at this um, situation that we find ourselves in. You, you recall that last time the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and he had some interesting things to say to her. He told her that she'd found favor with God that she'd conceive in her womb and bear a son and that she was to call his name Jesus. And then he went on to say that he will be great. He'd be called the son of God um, or son of the highest, that he would be sit on the throne of his father, David, that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And to his kingdom, there will be no end. And so there was a lot of things that Gabriel told Mary and she was quite amazed by all of these things. But, but then she asked the obvious question, uh, how are these things going to happen? Because I've never known a man. I, I'm, you know, I'm a virgin. And so Gabriel responded. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And the Holy One who will be born to you will be called the Son of God. That had to be a lot to take in for a young woman. And, and so it was comforting to know that the angel would say, but your, your relative Elizabeth is now in the sixth month of her who was called barren. She's also pregnant. And so, of course, Mary probably had heard about this news spread through the hill country of Judea and up into Nazareth pretty quickly in those days. And it's been a month since Elizabeth had made known that she was pregnant. Remember, she hid herself five months. And now for a month, it's been known. And so Mary quickly leaves Nazareth and goes down to the hill countries of Judea and spends three months with Elizabeth, the first trimester of her pregnancy. She's there in, um, in the hill countries of Judea. 
but then she makes the mistake of going home. Now, I know, it seems normal to go home, and literally she would have had to because she's betrothed to Joseph. And Joseph's in Nazareth, and she's in Nazareth, and, you know, in that culture, the, they would come and they would, you know, be together as far as um, a husband and wife. He would come and get her in Nazareth and take her to be with himself. And that's how the marriage was consummated, and that's how the marriage was officially, officially sealed, was at that moment. And it came in a, an hour and a day she did not expect or would not expect, and so she had to go back home. And it's coming time for her to have this baby. But it's interesting, as we look at the progression of this story, there's a problem. You see, God called a young woman from Nazareth to be the mother of Messiah. Now, a lot of things have lined up. When we look at Scripture, we look at the Old Testament, and specifically the things that are supposed to take place concerning the Messiah, we see Isaiah 7, um, 7, 14 fulfilled. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you'll call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And, and, and so the, he would be, as just the angel said, he'll be the son of God. He's going to be God with them. But also Isaiah 9, 6, that he would rule and on the throne of David. It says, and unto us, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so these prophecies are starting to line up. Even the timeline would line up. Because in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, which we talked about a little bit last time, there was a specific prophecy by Gabriel to Daniel that the Messiah, the prince, would present himself 483 years to the day after Jerusalem, the command and decree was put forth to rebuild Jerusalem. That happened 445 BC by Artaxerxes Longinus. It's a well-known date in history. He sent, Zerk, he sent Nehemiah, Xerxes sent Nehemiah to go rebuild Jerusalem, the city and the wall, which he did. And then 480, or 483 years from that day, based on a 360-day year, which you can tell by the, the counting of the days that they give, on April, 30, April 6, 33 AD, that would be the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and it's, that's verifiable. I mean, Sir Robert Anderson did the work in his book, The Coming Prince. And, and so it, it's, it, the timeline setting up, that's going to be a little over 30 years from this moment. And that would give time for the Messiah to grow up. You know, obviously he needs to learn how to ride a donkey and all those things, right? And so everything's kind of lining up except for one small detail. And that is... Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who will rule, be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So God, the Messiah, is going to be born in Bethlehem. So God picked a girl from the wrong town. All the way up in Nazareth. Oh... That's 108 miles away from Bethlehem. And they didn't have trams and trains and cars and planes and those types of things in those days. It was a long journey, 108 miles through wilderness, through rough terrain. So, so likely it would be a good week to a week and a half walking, unless, of course, they had picked up some caravan, or, or she rode on a donkey. Now, we all have seen the pictures, right? She rode on a donkey, right? She never tells us that. 
never says that she rode on a donkey. In fact, I read one commentary that said, likely if they had a donkey, Joseph rode it and she walked. <laughs> okay. That's, that kind of ruins my theology because uh, I, I grew up believing that she rode on a donkey because I played the donkey in the Christmas pageant and I had speaking part in everything. And so I, I grew up, my whole childhood was a lie. <laughs> I didn't realize that there was a talking donkey in the Bible until later, and that's a very different story. But it would be compelling if she did ride on a donkey, because it tells us in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the full of a donkey. I think it would have been cool if Mary would have rode through Jerusalem pregnant with the Messiah. Of course, that would be fulfilled um, later um, on April 6th of 33 AD when Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem. So what does God do? Verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar Augustus calls for a census to tax the entire Roman Empire. Um, I don't know what else could move a woman who's that late in her stage of pregnancy other than death or taxes. <laughs> Augustus decides to flex his imperial muscle, upset everyone's life, and we don't know anything about government overreach, do we? And the whole, the decree went out, the whole world should be masked for 100 days, you know, and taxed. Ugh. Uh, you know, when you think about, uh, you, hear, you watch the news and you know the threat of taxes, the threat of mask mandates, the threat of all of these things that, that the government would want to oppose on us, the, the, you know, a new president who takes office. You know, it just goes to show that no matter what they think they're doing, God is the one who's in control. You know, and, and I love to go to passages like this one to just take comfort in the fact that all these things must come to pass. Caesar wasn't making decision or flexing his power, but he was really just a pawn in the hand of God. God's the one who's in control. And so it is with us. I just think of King Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, King Nebuchadnezzar was not a righteous man, and yet he was the most powerful king that ever ruled on the kingdom of men. He had complete control, a literal world-dominant empire. And, and he, was the, he was the head of gold, you know, even in Daniel's dream, he was the head of gold, the greatest king with the most power that ever lived. And, and he would be called God's servant as he came against Jerusalem and took captive as judgment on God's people, taking them captive and carrying them off to Babylon. And, and yet, of course, he would be lifted up in pride and all that God had put into his hand. He would think, oh, this is what I've done. And God would humble him, and he, you know, he would um, go insane, think he was a cow, and eat grass for a while. And then he, when he came to his senses, this is what he said. And, and he was talking about himself, but I think this gives us great comfort today. It says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, the words of Nebuchadnezzar, The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. Isn't that interesting? And we have a president-elect who can't even speak two sentences without making a mistake. You know, and everybody's a donkey pony something um, or whatever he says all the time. And, and then he's replacing a president who half the time we just wish wouldn't speak at all. 
and who tweets crazy things. We're like, stop tweeting, you know. <sighs> and yet it just brings us back to the reality that God is in control. And that these things must come to pass. You know, I, I just, again, you know, we talked about it last time, the road to Emmaus. The disciples are walking. They're all discouraged and upset. And, and Jesus comes along and meets, joins himself to them. And why are you so upset? Oh, what are you, you know, are you dumb? Don't you, I mean, you're hurt, you know, and hurt, what things? Oh, Jesus, who we thought was great and mighty, word and deed, and he, he did miracles, and we thought he was the Messiah. And, and Jesus said, oh, you foolish to believe. You're slow to believe. All that the scripture has said. Don't you realize these things must come to pass? And, and then he took them to the scriptures and, and explained to them, expounded to them all the things that must take place. The Messiah must suffer and die. And, and, and so too, we, we look at the end times and we see all the things that are supposed to happen and we know that it's supposed to be wars and rumors of wars and difficulty and famines and pestilence and all those things. And, and, and yet we get so surprised when it happens. Instead of getting excited, we should realize these things must come to pass. And so to realize that God's in control and everything's working according to the counsel of his will. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 tells us the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. That's true for presidents or kings, rulers or senators or governors. God is working all these things out according to his plan. And he does, he does that for Mary and Joseph as he moves them um, uncomfortably down to Bethlehem, inconveniently down to Bethlehem. Isn't the Christian life supposed to be convenient? No, no. Verse 2, this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. And so um, Luke, being the historian that he is, he, he ties the narrative to a historical event so that we can pinpoint it in history. Kind of a beautiful thing that he does, and he does this throughout his gospel. He's constantly giving veracity to the timeline and to the events that are taking place by um, pinpointing historical rulers and, and things that are happening during the times that he's writing about. And so I think it's important, and that's, it's, a, it's a good thing that we have that. It helps us to to kind of ground where our narrative is going. Verse 3, it says, And all, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So Joseph... Um, Having been born in, in Bethlehem, having to um, go back to the city of his birth to be registered where his birth records were. And, and because Mary was betrothed to him, she has to go with him because they're legally married now um, because of the betrothal. So she would have to travel with him inconveniently. And, and I'm sure back in Nazareth, she had everything set up. You know how women are. It's getting ready to have the baby. They're nesting. They're cleaning. They're painting. They're arranging. They're setting up a crib. She's got the midwife ready to be called at any minute. The midwife's going to come over, and, and she's going to have the baby in the comfort of her home, and her mom's going to be there. Everything's going to be just right, right? I mean, that's how it goes. I remember when my wife and I, we were getting ready to have our firstborn son, and, you know, as, as new parents, you're like, okay, everything has to be perfect, right? You have to set everything up. Everything has to be perfect. By the third or fourth child, just like, okay, we're going to have a baby. But, but, but that first one's like, you're serious about it, you know? And we had a car, street, car seat strapped in the back seat for a couple months 
before the baby was born. It was back there. We had a bag that had clothes for me, clothes for her, clothes for the baby, little diapers. Everything was all in there. It was all ready to go because we knew at any moment we're going to have to go to the hospital, which that day came. Now, luckily, we, we had somebody given us an Audi, so we drove the Audi to the hospital rather than the donkey. Uh, we didn't have to go 108 miles through the wilderness, you know, um, to, to get to the hospital. But we did have the baby at Walter Knox Memorial Hospital, which is now Valor. And, and we tell people that, and they're like, are you kidding me? You had a baby at Walter Knox? Are you insane? You know, it's just funny. Like, it's like we were like in the back, you know, room of some, you know, abandoned warehouse or something like that. Like, that's what it, you didn't go to Boise. Are you kidding? That's crazy. Are you nuts? You know, it's like we had a birthing suite, you know, <laughs> it's like we weren't in a, in a barn, you know, I mean, come on. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it was sketchy, but it wasn't that bad, <laughs> you know. And, and he came out okay, and everything's, I mean, it worked out okay eventually, but, you know. But I just think about this, and, and this, this had to be a pretty rough thing. I can't imagine what Jer Joseph and Mary must have been thinking, making this journey. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, verse 6, it says, So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, I, we, think, we read this every Christmas probably. We go through this passage and we think about it, but do we really think about the implications of all that's here? And we think about what this would have been like. No room for them in the inn. Now, of course, this wasn't a Best Western that they're talking about. You weren't like a Hilton Hotel, you know, of Bethlehem or something like that. There probably is now. But in those days, it was, it was a Cataluma. Um, the word Cataluma means guest room. Um, but it also um, just means, actually, the word itself literally means to loosen to loosen, to loosen your shoes, take them off, to loosen your belt. And in fact, the other place that we find this word Cataluma used is when Jesus told his disciples, you'll find a guy carrying a water jug, follow him, and, and they'll take you to a large Cataluma, and we'll have our supper there. We'll have our Passover supper there. And that was the large upper room. It was the room in Mary of Jerusalem's house. The large upper room was called, it was called a Cataluma. It was a place where you'd go and you'd, you know, Loosen your, your straps and loosen everything up so that you can eat a meal and you can relax and you can um, take a load off. And, and they did use these as kind of like a B&B &B type place. You could go there and, and they'd serve you and you'd sleep there and all that. But it's usually just a big room. It could have been that or it could have been their family's Cataluma because it was a spare room. And so if their family had a Cataluma, they went there and the, all the family that was born in Bethlehem is now there and they're all hanging out. There's no room for you here. I don't know if it was their family turning them out or if it was an innkeeper who's saying, you know, you can't be here. But it, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a sad thing to think about getting all the way to Jerusalem or all the way to Bethlehem, trying to find um, a place to stay and, and be told that there's no room. And everybody's there because they're being taxed by the government. So Joseph had to help Mary find some place to give birth for their son and it tells us that she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Now, a manger is a feeding trough. We, we assume this was a place where um, the, the stable was and the cattle were kept. We don't know because it never tells us that he was actually born in a stable. It doesn't actually say that, but it tells us that he was born and laid in a manger. 
But this word manger that's used here refers to a manger that's carved out of stone. So probably not something they drug into the house. It's a giant stone manger, and it was a, it was a watering trough for their animals. Um, there were some ancient stables in Bethlehem. They still, they're still there today because they're caves carved out of the side of the rock. And there's still some of these, um, these feeding troughs still there, those um, mangers still there that are inside of these caves carved out of the rock. So she wraps him in scraps of cloth, is what this word swaddling clothes means. Just scraps, rags of cloth. It was the cheapest cloth you could get. In fact, it was what was used when you would bury somebody. When somebody died, you'd wrap them in this, these, this is grave clothes, kind of like a mummy. So she wraps him in grave clothes, very inexpensive. And this means that Mary didn't have a midwife or a physician attending her birth because um, she wrapped the baby herself. This would have been their job. What's fascinating to me as we think about this, Mary there in, the, in this cave, presumably, the public stable, putting her baby on a stone feeding trough, wrapping him in grave clothes. Jesus wouldn't experience anything like this until his death, when instead of being wrapped in cheap grave clothes, he's actually wrapped in fine linen. Instead of um, a, a cave for animals, he's actually, he's actually put into a cave that was carved out, a very expensive tomb. Him born in humility, but buried with the rich. In fact, it tells us in Isaiah 53 verse 9 that they made his grave with the wicked, which means that they would have had a place carved out for him in the Valley of Hinnom where they would have thrown his dead body and burned him with the rest of the criminals. But with the rich is death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea, we know the story, went and asked Pilate if he could have his body. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, wealthy man, third richest in Jerusalem. Asked for Jesus' body, and him and Nicodemus wrapped him in fine linen and a hundred pounds of aloe and, and packed his body and wrapped his body and then placed him in Joseph of Arimathea's own family tomb, fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling Isaiah 53 verse 9. I can imagine Joseph and Mary in the midst of this difficult time asking, where's God in all of this? I mean, they'd seen angels and they'd seen, um, you know, they'd seen the angel and they'd, they'd had visions and, and, and Mary even went to Elizabeth and Elizabeth said some pretty amazing things. And then Mary herself was compelled to say a bunch of amazing things concerning this birth. But now it seems like everything's gone wrong. It's like God has blocked them and, and everything's gone wrong. And I, I wonder if they wondered, did we do something to offend God? Did we take a wrong turn? Did we do something we weren't supposed to do? Second guessing themselves as they find themselves kicked out in the middle of the most humiliating circumstances and having their baby and laying your baby in a feeding trough that animals drink from. I mean, think how unsanitary that would feel. And as a mom, how insecure you would be to, to lay your baby in that place. Only second to the ground where the animals have been using, using it as a restroom. And yet, even though they probably felt in that moment that God wasn't there, this perfect gift that they'd been given was actually Emmanuel, God with us. At that moment. I think we have those times when we feel like everything's falling apart. 
Like God's abandoned us. Like everything seems to be going sideways and nothing seems to be coming together. And we contrast that, I think, sometimes with those moments when God provides. Have you guys, how many of you guys have seen God do a miracle and provide in your life? Just raise your hand. Yeah, that's almost everybody. Okay. We've seen God do miracles. I remember when my wife and I, we, we got married. God had provided so much for our wedding. It was, it was just amazing how many things he just provided again and again and again. And we didn't really have any money for a honeymoon. We had, we had one night at um, a Best Western where she worked, and we had a good discount for that. But then we thought, you know, maybe we'll do something more if we have some money. And, and we opened up our wedding gifts, and we had a bunch of um, people just gave us money, specifically for a honeymoon, because they knew that we weren't going to be able to go. And, and so we, we gathered up all the money, and we, we had enough to, to do a quick honeymoon. And so we went to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we, we, first we went to a Best Western that was a motel, and that's where we were going to stay, and I was like, well, I think that other one was a Best Western, and so we went over there, and we, we were just going to try to get a good room, and anyway, one thing led to another, the, the manager comes out, and he says, why don't you give him the Glory Bowl suite? And, and so we got a $300 room, it was this massive room for 63 bucks a night, we had luxury honeymoon, and God just provided. And there's times like that where God just provides, and he provides, and you're just like, man, God is so good. This is awesome. But then what about those times when God seemingly doesn't provide? When you're, you're in the depths of, of darkness, and, and you're just struggling, and you, you're like, God, where are you? And, and it just seems like God is nowhere. Have you seen that? that, that where it says God is nowhere? Does that say God is nowhere, or does it say God is now here? So we think that God is nowhere, but actually, he's here. He's with us. And isn't it true that oftentimes when we're in the darkest time of our life, that that's when God is the closest to us? If we'll just see it. If we're just willing to see it. It's amazing to me the parallels between Jesus' birth and Jesus' resurrection. You know, it, not only did, were, were the parallels between his, his death and his birth similar, but also the announcement at both. Notice verse 8. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping over the, watch over their flocks by night. And these, these would have been Bethlehem, and the hill country around Bethlehem is where the temple shepherds kept their sheep. So these sheep were being raised for Passover and other sacrifices to be done in the temple. It's kind of interesting. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So angels announce his birth, not to kings, not to religious leaders, not to rich, not to powerful, but to shepherds. I don't know how you feel about this story, but to me, this is just super weird. Not just that he announces to shepherds, but why didn't he announce this at the stable? Why didn't the angels show up at the stable and be like, Hey, everybody, the Messiah. Or wouldn't that be comforting to Mary? But it didn't happen that way. In fact, at the stable, it was just darkness and difficulty and, and sorrow, probably. And, and then far, far away off into the, in the fields, the angels show up there. They announce the birth to the humblest of all people, the shepherds. 
Shepherds didn't have a good reputation. You read um, about shepherds in, in Judea during that time, and they were known as thieves. And, and, you know, you watched your stuff when shepherds were around. And so now the shepherds, the, the most humble of all people that these angels would appear to. You know, it's interesting because even at his resurrection, the, the angels, they, they didn't appear to all the disciples or the religious leaders. They appeared to a, a group of women. Again, as we saw last time, when Elizabeth said, yeah, his name's John, they're like, yeah, I don't think so. You don't know anything. We'll ask, his hus- ask her husband. And Zacharias had to say, yeah, his name's John. They were marveled. Ooh, she wasn't dishonest about it, you know? Taking advantage of, of Zacharias's muteness, you know, <laughs> or whatever. The women didn't have a lot of respect. And I love this because Jesus brings respect. He brings honor to people who are cast off by society. And think about this. I mean, what manger scene, what, what celebration of Christmas do we not have shepherds there? And, and, and when we think about women, look what the gospel has done for women around the world. Everywhere the gospel has gone, women are elevated. And everywhere the gospel has not gone, women are looked at as property or less than. It's amazing how Jesus always goes to those who are, are humbled by society or outcast by society, and he brings honor to them. The angels announce this resurrection, um, or excuse me, this, this birth, and they say it's for all people. This is a gift for all people, and that's why he went to, they went to shepherds. Because, you know, you'd, you'd say, well, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's for the good people, but not for those people. He goes to the lowest, to let, to let it be known to everybody. This, this gift is to all people. And he is the Savior, they say. He's the Savior. Why a Savior? Because we need saving, guys. Because we're fallen and wretched and miserable and sinful. And we have, we have failed and we have fallen and we are wicked in our hearts. And God comes to us to save us. He brings his Son to us to save us from our sin. You know, if you know yourself, you know that your heart is desperately wicked, that you're you're capable of horribly wicked things. He didn't come to you to save you to be religious. He came to save you to be his child. And we needed a savior. We're we're fallen, we're sinful, so he, he sends a savior. He is also the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what this word means. He's the Christ. Remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden when mankind fell, God promised that he would send the seed of the woman, speaking of a virgin birth, a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent, take away the authority that the devil has taken over mankind. And that whoever would believe would would be set free from that, the Bible tells us. God sent his son to the world because he loved the world and whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's good news that he is also Lord. I, I think this is one that we overlook a lot of times. You know, I want Jesus the Savior. I need to be saved from my sin. I want Jesus the Messiah. God promised somebody would come and, and undo that curse. But we're not saved for ourselves, guys. We're saved for God's purposes. And, and He is Lord. Not just the Savior, not just the Messiah, but Lord of all. To him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And so we have to let him be our Lord. I know sometimes we don't want to let him be our Lord, do we? Like, no, I just do things my way. Not thy will, but my will be done. And yet sometimes we sing, we'll sing in church, I surrender all. You know, we sing those songs, I surrender. We have sing a lot of songs about surrender. And if we were honest with ourselves half the time, we would be singing, I surrender a little bit. I surrender none, you know. All for me, I'm living for myself. I, you know, I, we're, I mean, I'm obviously not the, the songwriter here, but we, we wouldn't, you know, we, would, we shouldn't sing that unless we mean it. And, and he is Lord. It means that he's in control and we should be saying, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you want in my life, that's what I want. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. I want to be obedient and, and faithful to you, Lord. I don't know about you, but I've lived life where I've been trying to live for myself. And I live life where I'm trying to live for the Lord and letting him be Lord and, and obeying him and asking him what he wants to do and asking him where, where he wants me to go. And the times where I'm doing that, life is exciting. Life is fulfilling. Life is wonderful. The times I'm living for myself, let's not talk about that. It's not so good. He's Lord, guys. That's good news because you can't manage your own life, but he has a perfect plan for you. And so to, to realize that this baby that's born, he, he is savior. He is Christ. He is Lord. Verse 12. And this will be the sign to you that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. I think if, I think if you were to translate this out really in the Greek, you would you find a baby glowing. And, and everybody there will have rings of light around their head. They're called halos. And you will find a holy scene where a beam of light is coming down from a star and illuminating the spot where he's laying. No, none of that. That would be a sign, right? I mean, you'll find a, a company of angels singing and pointing. That's the one. No, there's nothing like that. No, you're going to find a baby wrapped in rags, laying in a trough. That's literally what he's saying. That's your sign. That seems like the angels that they're experiencing right now are more of a sign than that. But no, you're going to, this is the sign. I'm sure that they'd never seen that before. That'd be interesting to say the least. Verse 13 and suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now it's not just one angel, it's a multitude of angels. It's so exciting for a, a group of common shepherds to hear this. And, and notice the message, and I think that this message that they give them right now is a message that most people do not believe. And maybe today you don't believe this message. Well, what does he say? He says, goodwill toward men. Remember, this is a message for all people. God's goodwill towards you. That he wants to give you peace. And that peace brings glory. The message that he's bringing about goodwill towards men to all people brings glory to God. Now, I just want to think about this. What do you think about when you think about what God thinks about you? Think about that for a minute. I know it's a, a bit of a stretch because you usually don't think about that. 
How do you feel about how God feels about you? Or what do you think God thinks about you? Do you realize what he's saying here? God has goodwill toward you. His thoughts for you are, are of good and not of destruction. Now, I understand what you're thinking sometimes because you know how bad you've been. You know your sin. You're the only one who knows your sin like you do. You're, you're the only one who knows what you've done. And to think that anybody would find out would be horrifying. And yet God knows every single thing that you've ever done and ever thought, even a few minutes ago. He knows. And yet he has goodwill towards you. He wants peace with you. And, and, and Jesus coming into this world has brought peace with God for you. Because Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself and died upon the cross for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. See, I don't think that a lot of people understand this. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He didn't spare his son because he loved you so much that he gave his son that perfect gift so that you could be reconciled to God and he will with his son, who he's going to make the heir of all things, with you, he's going to, with him, he's going to give you all good things. What do you think about when you think about how God thinks about you? You know, some of us just don't want to have it. But you have to realize God didn't save you for religion. He didn't save you so you would keep the rules. So that you would be the perfectly obedient Christian religious person. I have a friend who's a pastor of Calvary Chapel and he's just serving the Lord with all of his heart and he had an elder that was at his church with him and, and him and his wife came and they thought, oh, this is great, you know, love this church, you know, everything. But then his wife was like, where's the rules? Where's the rules to follow? I, you aren't giving us any rules. He said, I'm not giving you, I can't give you rules. I want you to have a relationship with God. You have to ask him what the rules are. You have to ask him what he de desires from you. you can't, I can't give you a list of rules. And she finally told her husband, I can't do this anymore. I want to go back to the Baptist church, fundamental Baptist church, where they're going to give me a list of rules and things I can do. How sad is that? This isn't about keeping rules. You think that that would fly in your marriage if you said, okay, well, tell me what the rules are. Uh, give, me, give me five. I'll, give you, I'll do five things for you. And, you know, as long as I'm doing those five things, we're good, right? No, she wants love. He wants, he wants respect. They, there has to be a relationship. And God saved you, not for rules. He saved you for a relationship with himself. And that's what this is all about. That's why he came into this world and was born into this crazy circumstance. Because he wanted to be able to relate to you. He wanted to you to know that he was with you. No matter what you're going through. And that you can relate to him. And that you can come boldly to the throne of grace. We don't have a high priest who can't relate to our weaknesses. He was tempted in every single way that we are. And yet without sin. And therefore we can come boldly before the throne of grace. For grace and mercy to help in time of need. Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. He loves us and he wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want a robot. He doesn't want just an obedient person. He wants somebody who loves him and who follows him and cares about a relationship with him. 
Verse 15, he says, So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. So it seems that this place that they were was a public stable. This is why they were able to find them. Very strange sight to see. I doubt any of them had ever seen a baby lying in a feeding trough before, or even a stable for that matter. You know, it's, it's amazing to me. I mean, why would, God, why would God allow his son to be born in a barn? Why would he allow that? I mean, think about that. He allows it because he, he wanted him to experience the hardest and the most difficult life he could possibly live. And you, you read Jesus' life, and it wasn't a bed of roses, was it? It wasn't palaces and, and privilege and, and the best teachers and the best schools and the best you know, upbringing. It was difficulty. It wouldn't be long after this. Of course, uh, later the, the wise men would come, and they would, they would give to Jesus, um, you know, before, come before Jesus and give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they, they'd be given a little bit of wealth, but then immediately they had to flee for their lives and go down to Egypt. And then fearing for their lives, they, they heard by an angel that they could come back to Jerusalem and they, they went up back up to Nazareth, or back to Israel, they came, went up to Nazareth and lived there. Jesus grew up as a carpenter's son in poor conditions in Nazareth, a very poor community. Difficult circumstances. Didn't have a place to stay when he was in ministry. Didn't have a place to lay his head, he tells us. He was despised and rejected of men. He was made fun of. He was talked down to. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why? So that he could relate to you in your difficulty, in your trial. And God draws near to the brokenhearted. And he comforts those who are weary and those who are downcast. A long time ago, a guy in our church asked me if I knew why Jesus was born in a barn. I said, I said why? He said, because he's the Lamb of God. Lambs are born in barns. <laughs> Cute. Verse 17. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which is told them concerning the child. I, I think we can learn a lot from these shepherds. I love that they went and told everybody. Now, I mean, maybe that's why the angels went to them, because shepherds talk. You know, what else are they going to do? You know, you, you sit outside alone by yourself for so long. When you get around people, you talk, you know. And so they, they, they made it widely known. But I think it's important for us. You know, when we see Jesus in our lives, we should tell other people. You know, that, that's, that's the first thing that we should do. I, I think Greg Laurie in his Tell Someone video series, which I recommend to all of you, it's, a, it's about personal evangelism. He says that the, one of the disciplines that is widely lacking within the Christian community is, is to tell people. And one of the best things to do is when you first get saved, to go and start telling people about it. It's easier when you're super excited at the beginning. Now, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, our family needs to hear this because they're the ones who I, want, I care about the most. So I'm going to go tell my family about Jesus and we go and tell them and they're like, we don't like you and we think you're a loser and we don't care. And that kind of defeats us and we're kind of scared after that. But we shouldn't be scared. Good news is good news, right? And, and so these shepherds go out, they tell everybody, they spread it far and wide. And those, verse 18, who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Probably, probably not necessarily believing everything they hear from shepherds, which you shouldn't, you know. Yeah, I think they're crazy, but they marveled at it. Hmm, that's interesting. 
Notice this verse 19, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Kind of gives you the idea that Mary maybe questioned her own sanity a little bit. You know, why didn't the angels show up here? <laughs> you know, why wasn't there a company of angels and the glory of God surrounding this place? You know, did, did I really hear? Did, did I really see? Was I hallucinating when I saw the vision of the angel? You know, was, was is, is something else going wrong? Did I disappoint God somehow in this whole situation? I mean, what's going on here? But she'd, she'd store up all that had happened. The words of Gabriel, Joseph's dream, Elizabeth's words. And now probably questioning all that, that had happened that day. You know, and, and probably questioning her own sanity at the first, but then the, then the shepherds show up. They, they start to talk to her. It says, verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Uh, this is something that we need to consider. And this is probably one of the darkest and most confusing moments of Mary's life. And, and the truth is, is that not every one of us is going to have miracle after amazing thing happen to us in our lives. There are going to be dark times. There are going to be dark valleys that we go through in our lives. We have to understand that those dark valleys are for a purpose, as was Jesus being born in these dark circumstances for a purpose. God has his reasons for us to go through these dark things because if you noticed, God draws closest to us when we're going through our darkest times. And if you've ever been through a, a severe trial and reached out for God and said, God, I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't get it. God, help me. Give me peace. Give me comfort. Give me, give me help. Help me to see. And, and maybe there's, there's no end in sight to the trial that we find ourselves in. And yet in the midst of it, as we cry out to God, he gives us a supernatural peace. He gives us a supernatural comfort that carries us through that. And this is the beautiful thing, is in that dark time, we find that God is the closest to us, just as he was right there in Mary's lap. Closer to her than she ever possibly could have imagined. And so it is with you and me. I love reading Christian biographies because it, it kind of gives you an outside perspective, God's perspective, you know, in a sense, because you're reading through their life and you see, you read about them getting saved and then you read about their early ventures of faith and learning to trust the Lord and then God using them to do mighty things. I love that. Hudson Taylor is a good example. Brother Andrew's another one. I'm God's smuggler. <sighs> Lots of them out there. Um, great to read, but, but it just helps you to see how God, he, he, he starts out in this person's life and, and then he just, he uses them to do great things. And it helps you, it helps me to look at their life and see the things that they suffered and the things that see the victories and, and the closeness of the Lord and the faith that they had and how God came through for them. And to realize God can do that in my life too. But it does take those difficult times in order to develop that character. Just as James said, as we went through the book of James, count it all joy when you face various trials because the testing of your faith produces patience, right? Let patience have its perfect worth that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing or wanting nothing. I don't, I don't need anything because God is going to provide everything I need. And as we go through those difficulties, we learn those lessons. And so verse 21 and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before 
he was conceived in the womb. And so um, kind of a difference between our culture and theirs. Um, ours, we think of names. You know, maybe we, if we don't know the, the gender, we pick out a boy and a girl name, right? And usually those are picked out months in advance, right? And, and in, their, in their culture, they would have the baby and then they would scrutinize this newborn for the first eight days and say, okay, you know, it looks like a Henry. Um, no, definitely a Fred. Definitely a Fred. I thought it was a Henry, but look, no, it's Fred. You know, and they were, they would, that's what they would do. They'd wait eight days. Of course, this, this baby's name was already picked out. So they named him on the eighth day, Jesus, which means God is salvation. Still, even after all that they went through, still saying, yeah, God is salvation. He is Jesus. He is the savior. And, and I think that that's a testimony to, to Mary and Joseph and where they were at. But it's a testimony to us. And every time this time of year and we think about the things that, that God did to come into this world under such humble circumstances and save us, it's a time to remember that he is enough, that he is enough for us in his, in his sacrifice for us, but he's also enough for us in that he knows what we're going through and he cares about us. And even though we might be going through a dark time, he loves us and he's with us. And there's no gift greater than that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We are so grateful for the message that we get this time of year during the Christmas season to remember that you are with us, that you became a man, that you humbled yourself, and and that you came into this world to save us from all of our sins. What a beautiful picture we have here of, of your sufficiency, of your love for us. And, and, and also a great example of how you can move <laughs> leaders to, to move things around and to get people where you want them, Lord. And I, I just think about that concerning the circumstances we find ourselves in in our world with people being locked down in, in various cities around the United States and around the world, countries being locked down, um, just uh, confused leaders who don't know what's, what's right and what's wrong or what, how to deal with the, the things, and, and maybe even bigger agendas that, that we wonder about as we look at all that's happening in the world right now, what, they're, what we're being conditioned for. And you know, ultimately knowing, Jesus, that you are the one who moves these, these leaders. They think they're so powerful, but they really aren't. Lord, you're in control. And you are bringing about everything according to the counsel of your will. Lord, help us to rest in that fact as we see all that's happening in the world today. We thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign over us. We thank you that you love us and you care about our state. You care about our our small things that we deal with here in little Emmett, Idaho. Because we're your children and you love us. Help us to have a relationship with you, Lord. To draw close to you and to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Man, we stand with me.